0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We're
1: not going to move away from you know being a, a capitalistic society. And even if we did, I'm not sure that would be the solution. But I think if we you know, really look at the history of how certain things have come about, and invest in those areas that, you know, we've not invested in, you know, the odd thing that's happened in the last 25 years where we've removed a lot of funding from mental health institutions and you have a lot of people who have mental health issues on the streets in some cities, up to 40% of those people are veterans from the last 20 years of war. Right? So I think it starts with us acknowledging that some of our, our, lack of attention and lack of investment in these areas has exacerbated these problems and then having a willingness to actually invest the money in those areas so that we can move forward and this doesn't happen again.
2: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I was actually introduced to you by way of my brother-in-law who told me about uh, the work that you do and the fact that you're a doctor and, and you know, that you just have a very interesting background. But before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up and what impact did where you grew up end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in South Haven, Michigan, uh, which is a rural community in um guess near Kalamazoo is probably the biggest uh town there um you know I would say that the way that it impacted uh how I look at uh i guess rather my viewpoint and in, in terms of my career and and how it's guided me is you know my family my wife my my uh i'd say dad and mom met in Chicago in junior college, but then they realized that that's not a place that they would want to raise a kid, because at that time it was just a lot of gangs and a lot of other problems like that. And so my dad came from a rural community in Arkansas. And so he felt one of the best things that he could do for us is kind of raise us in a rural community as far away from that type of uh, violence as he could. So growing up on a farm with you know cows and hogs and chickens and you know blueberries and all these other types of responsibilities, I think taught me from an early age, uh, the value of uh, not just hard work, but the value of a, of a narrative uh, in terms of your life story uh, and how that can kind of propel you forward. Mm. What,
2: I mean, what was the, the sort of dominant narrative you're growing up around your house, particularly growing on up on a farm? Because, you know, I mean, typically somebody who ends up in med school, that's not the trajectory of where they end up. They're usually like, you know, the parents of kids who are scientists or something like, you know, or the kids of parents who are scientists, something like that. Um, I think it's just such an interesting background to come from to end up where you did,
1: you know, a little bit more background uh, on me would be that, um, my mom was a nurse. Uh, she before that was a legal secretary and um but she always wanted to go to medical school, but then after she had my brother, um my mom and dad kind of thought about it and said, Well, it would probably be more efficient uh for you to go to nursing school. So I grew up kind of with her kind of guiding me and and um I think helping me in terms of my medical interests. And then also just growing up on a farm, the interesting thing is I saw anatomy in ways that a lot of, you know, six and seven year olds I didn't see it because, you know, I was, you know, right there next to the butcher, you know, every uh March and November whenever they would slaughter the cows and, you know, have a side of beef and hanging that up and uh Slim would show me, you know, this is where the heart is and you know, this is the liver and these other types of things. Um and I felt as if growing up on a farm and, and getting exposure to different types of things, I got to see science from a very practical standpoint, you know, whereas a lot of kids you know probably had you know their science experiments in classrooms you know i got to put cyanide tablets in water and then you know give that to chickens and and, and do types of things like that that we needed to do um, in order to to make everything function or even putting fertilizer down or things on those lines so i think in terms of how it guided me towards medicine is it helped me understand um not just the, the circle of life, but understanding, uh, the importance of science in life. Yeah.
2: You know, the, I think the, the other thing that strikes me is really, um, interesting about this is that I'd imagine that the experience of growing up the way you did leads to a lot of self-reliance that most of us just don't have. Uh, because, you know, for me, the idea of having to kill my food or, you know, raise it sounds, you know, somewhat insane, even though my roommate thinks it's the greatest idea in the world. He's like, we should just get a bunch of chickens in our garage. Uh, so I wonder, what did you learn about self-reliance for, from that experience and how has it played out throughout your life?
4: Yeah, so I think one of the most important things I learned in my childhood um,
1: was, I think, a, a healthy mixture of self-reliance, but then also understanding importance of growing up in a community where you are valued. Um, so one of the things that I realized was you know, when – my dad uh, moved our family to Michigan, you know, it wasn't, you know, as I said before, entirely because, you know, he said, Hey, look, this is where I'm going to put my family. Um, it was also because they could not really get, um, reliable housing in Chicago. I mean, this wasn't, you know, the height of redlining, you know, in the thirties and forties and fifties, but there was still a lot of, uh, you know, racism and, um, I'd say residual, uh, you know, issues in terms of racial covenants and difficulty. Um, uh, finding an area that would be safe to raise your kids. Uh, and so, you know, when they got um, a mortgage, when they got a bank uh, that seemed reliable and seemed willing to, uh, you know, invest in their buying the property, you know, right next door to them um, was another family that had moved from Chicago uh, to the area. And then across the street uh, was a family that um, also had some uh, experience farming. And so, One of those families, the Brown family, what they did was they helped my dad set up all of the uh, the fences to kind of separate the different pastures that we had there. And even though my dad grew up on a farm, you know, it had been 20 years or so in in a different environment. So, you know, the people around us uh, supported us a lot. And I felt as if um, it ended up becoming uh, a symbiotic relationship because when I was maybe seven or eight years old, I started working on um, the Browns' uh, property and, and picking blueberries and, and doing things on those lines. And one of the funniest things I think I learned from that as a child was, you know, as, as kind and loving as the Browns were, you know, Mr. Brown was also very strict. Um, and so, you know, there was one day where uh, I think it was, it was raining. And so I got excited as a kid. I said, hey, you know, we're not going to have to go pick blueberries next door. We can go play inside or or whatever. Uh, And so I called uh, Mr. Brown and said, well, you know, it's raining, so I don't have to come over there. And he said, well, it stopped raining. So, you know, you can come over in an hour. And my older brother, um, who was relying on me to give him accurate information, what we're supposed to do. uh, I told him, I said, oh, yeah, Mr. Brown said, we don't have to come. And so he fired him, you know, which was pretty hilarious. And then my dad talked to me, rehired us. One of the things that, you know, Mr. Brown told us when we came back a couple of days later is he said, look, you can't you're not supposed to lie to people. You know, that's not something that you do. Um, so so that's why I said there are a lot of good life lessons that we learned um, from a community that, that valued us as as members.
2: Yeah, well, it, why do you think that we have you know sort of lost that symbiotic nature uh, that you grew up with? Because you know, I I think that what strikes me as odd is that you know I go to my parents' house; they live you know in a, a fairly nice suburb in a, a relatively nice neighborhood, and I don't think I know any of their neighbors. Like you yeah. know, I ask my friends, like, do you know? Who? Like, yeah, we've talked to them once, and it's kind of strange that you know you live in such close proximity. And yet you have so little contact with each other and, you know, I I can't help but think of, um, Vivek Murthy's book together, uh, which was all about loneliness and, and kind of what an impact it's had on, um, you know, society at large and how it's led to all these horrible things. And, you know, I I kind of wonder, like, what is it that has caused Mm -hmm. us to lose that? But more importantly, how do we get it back?
1: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's it's interesting i think if you look at a lot of the studies that compare the united states to um other countries around the world ones that you know collectively have lower gdp's have uh, you know per person or just you know as a country and when you look at these indices of their happiness or you look at these indices of their depression um more often than not you know we rank higher in terms of depression and loneliness um, despite the fact that we have more money. Um, uh, and I think part of that is we have become a society of individuals. Um, I mean, I, I don't get me wrong. I mean, I studied law. law. I'm, I'm the member of the California Bar, you know, and I, and I take the whole idea of, of individual liberties and civil liberties and freedoms very seriously. But I think there's a difference between that uh, and this idea that, at the end of the day, um, you're in it alone. Uh, and everyone else around you is just another person who's kind of in it alone. Um, and so I, you know, how do we get that back? Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's like a lot of other things in life. I think it starts from the top. I think we really need, um, strong, reliable leadership to kind of help us feel okay, uh, in those instances, uh, and, and, and help us understand How so many different communities and societies have so much in common uh, that it's it's actually better for us uh, to reach out to people who uh, may seem different uh, from who we are or, you know, or our histories uh, and and get to to know something about them, as you said, with respect to your neighbors and stuff like that.
2: Well, I think that makes a a perfect segue to, uh, you know, another thing that I'm I'm very, you know, curious about. I mean, you're an African-American who has become a doctor and I kind of wonder, you know, one, what were race relations like while you were growing up and how have they impacted you in your career? Do you see biases because of race? Like, do you experience things that other people don't? Because, you know, I remember my, my roommate actually said he'd finished reading White Fragility and he said, he came to the conclusion that he's like, wow, he's like being white is, you know, like being a, f- you know, like water to a fish. You just don't ever really think about it at all.
4: Yeah. Um. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is kind of going back to what I said in the beginning, I think narrative
1: is a very important thing, you know, whatever the ethnicity is or society is, and that narrative can and does uh, shape your viewpoint on your entire life, um and so the narrative that my parents instilled in me you know on one side, you know I had my dad I'll never forget this. you know he told me one of the reasons that he loved Shakespeare so much was because he felt that you know he could by reading Shakespeare and understanding it um, he could understand uh concepts that were um that transcended you know race. And this is coming from someone who grew up in segregated Arkansas. And, you know, I was chased away from polls and stuff like that from the stories that he told me. Uh, The local bank would not allow uh, an African-American to have a bank account. Um, But part of the narrative of what my my dad gave me was, you know, look, there have been all of these different successes Um, by African Americans uh, through history. You know, if we're talking about George Washington Carver or Martin Luther King, or, you know, the ones that are more commonly known, but then others that are known through, um, uh, you know, a deep reading of African American history. And so understanding that there's this uh, narrative of being able to succeed despite um, some of these instances of, of racism that I think you know, has, uh, you know, plagued a lot of people. So in terms of me personally, you know, I would definitely say there've been instances where I felt as if, um, you know, there've been challenges that I've had to overcome because of my race.
2: Can you give specifics, like what were some of them that you recalled that are, have been formative?
4: Um, you know, I, I think in terms of, Specifics. I can give you a really good example. So, part of what we're most concerned about in
1: um, medicine is, uh, or rather, health disparities. So, this idea that um, there are various social determinants and other factors that contribute to, and implicit and explicit bias, uh, the outcomes um, for people of different ethnicities being drastically different. Uh, And so, you know, this has been studied from the standpoint of uh, cardiovascular outcomes between African-Americans and whites or uh, cancer survival outcomes. And so, you know, getting back to the story about my mom. So my mom was diagnosed with uh, lung cancer about two and a half years ago. Um, and she was one of the one in five people that didn't smoke that got lung cancer. I knew enough about um, or had enough exposure to this idea of health disparities But I said, look, you know, okay, so this is uh, something that's happened. Uh, I'm going to try to take as much control over uh, this care as possible so I can try to make sure that, you know, she doesn't become uh, a statistic um, in this idea of health disparities. And, you know, I'll never forget a conversation that I had um, with a neurologist who was also a board-certified neurologist that never met my mom, um, didn't know anything about her, and I was recounting these symptoms that she was having as an internal medicine doctor and, and seeing these symptoms. And uh, the neurologist had said, well, you know, it's it's not uncommon um, for African-American women to have, you know, vascular dementia, and that's likely what this is. And it was completely the wrong diagnosis. But, um, and, you know, we come to find out what she actually had, which was an autoimmune encephalitis um, that was secondary to the lung cancer. But I raised that point to say, um, you know that substantially affected uh our life in my viewpoint because you know it required me to um you know not just take a a front role in terms of our health care but then also it caused a distrust uh in the healthcare care system for me which had been um had not been there before
2: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess part there's one other part of this, you know, I'm really curious to hear your perspective on. I mean, it sounds to me like you were guided um, quite well. I mean, you know, if we could argue to say that you know, you grew up in relatively privileged circumstances, not necessarily tremendous privilege per se, but then there are also people who who don't, you know, who grew up in really, really difficult environments, um, most of which uh, are really difficult to get out of. Because I, I think I was reading a book the other day called The Hacking of the American Mind. And what this guy was saying was, you know, people who grew up in environments like ghettos and stuff, he's like, well, their chances of actually, their, their upward mobility is so limited because of their circumstances. And so I wonder when you look at where you've ended up, how you think about bridging that gap um, between people like yourself and people who don't manage to overcome, um, you know, the narrative that's been so dominant.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it takes an entire societal lift uh, is what it it does. And so I think the, the most recent killing of George Floyd, I think, has kind of highlighted for a lot of people the importance of society coming together um, and, and trying to, uh, step up to the plate and, and, and do its role in this. Because even though I think it's, it's a good thing, for example, that you would have, let's say, you know, I'd see these and kind of one-offs here and there, you'd have a, you know, an African-American, you know, of of whatever gender, uh, that gets in a certain position. Um, and so then, you know, let's say it's in a a company or corporation they say, okay, let's have a mentoring program. And, you know, we're going to try to reach out, um, and try to, you know, help some others that, um, may have uh, may not have had the same um, you know, privileges and opportunities that you had, and so it, you just can't have one or two people doing that. I mean, you have to have, even if it were at a corporate level, you'd have to have the entire corporation um, interested in uh, doing the uh, corporate corporate social responsibility, or you know, if it's a community, the entire community are looking to figure out, okay, how are we going to get you know better housing for people that are of lower income. As opposed to relying on Section Eight or some other type of housing, um, so I think part of it starts with the listening that you've um, that we're beginning to have, have, and I think another part starts with making sure that the people that are most affected by these things are uh, included in the conversation. You know, whether it's in policing and ensuring that you have, um, you know, enough African Americans on the police force and not just on the lower ranks, but you know, much higher. in uh, the ascension to, you know, higher levels of, of leadership, but then also making sure that the people that are most affected, um, get constant, uh, access to the leaders that are in place, which doesn't seem to occur that frequently.
2: Yeah. yeah I mean, that, that's, that's kind of what, you know, I've, I've noticed it seems like there are a lot of people who have no skin in the game, making policy and, and making decisions that aren't affected at all by the outcomes of those decisions. um, So, you know, with that in mind, I mean, also, we're in this very sort of polarized situation, unlike anything we've ever seen. Um, You know, I think part of it is that people's viewpoints are so extreme, you know, the narratives are so extreme. And, you know, finding common ground and building that bridge, I, I think is really, you know, something that we're struggling with. I mean, we're not you know, able to actually do that. In fact, I just interviewed, uh, this woman who wrote a book called hive mind and she talked about, you know, how tribalism is basically dividing us, but it happens on virtually every level, you know, from people like you and I to people on, you know, other sides with different opinions. So how do we get to a place of, of, you know, sort of agreement and accord, uh, when we have such profound differences in, you know, worldviews, narratives, and all the things that have happened. And um, I mean, you're seeing it play out right now in the healthcare system in a way probably that most of us don't have a view of, you know, I think we just see what's on the news, but I don't think any of us really understand, um, particularly for those of us who lead relatively privileged lives. Like I was talking to a friend the other day and she said, you know, you, Basically, we're able to take care of our kids and you know keep them home from school during the situation when the schools are not open. She said, well, what about people who don't have that luxury whose parents are working outside of the home? She's like, we don't think about any of those things.
1: No, you're exactly right. And and I think it a lot of it starts with the narrative that we're willing to have as a country, um, and the the truths that we're willing to see. And and a lot of people, I think, just aren't at that point. Um you know one of the the best things i think uh, my parents did for me was you know as a child they said hey look you know you have your readings that you have in school you know you're going to read you know about some you know 13th or 14th century you know english poet or something um but you're also going to read before the mayflower you know which was a story of all these or rather the history of um a lot of the um trials and tribulations of african americans uh, in the, the United States for the last 400 years, or you're going to read, you know, let the trumpet sound during the summer, you know, in between going out to play, which was, you know, the the biog- the biography of um, Martin Luther King, you know, or you're going to read uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X. You're going to read these things um, so that you understand uh, that, you know, yes, there is, you know, this is a country that's unique in the sense that it was started with this idea of uh it being a democracy, a limited democracy at that time, because you know you had to be you know, a white male uh landowner. Um but it's a democracy that uh you know has amendments to the Constitution, which like I said, I, it it baffles me that you have these people with these you know originalist uh mindsets that uh you know seem to ignore the fact that the whole point of the Constitution is that it can be amended. Um but to understand that you know we we've created a country Uh, that was not perfectly created because it was created um, substantially through uh, the labor and, um, you know, resources and lives of people that that did not give uh, their resources and lives willingly, Um, but that we have um, a history of always becoming, or in general, becoming better. You know, when you look at uh, the amendments that gave or the amendment, rather, that gave women suffrage. Where you look at uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1965. Um, so I think if we have, and it goes back to leadership again with me, and I, you know, maybe it's because of my military background, but if we have leadership that helps us understand why that narrative is important, um, that we are a country that you know values uh, values hard work, that understands how we were created, and acknowledges that. I think it'll move us forward uh, collectively beyond tribalism uh, a lot more than anything else uh, that we've seen so far. Yeah.
2: So you mentioned the military background and I am always sort of intrigued by, you know, anybody who has spent time in the military and and sort of uh, trying to understand, you know, what it is that, that, you know, drives military decisions. I mean, when you look at military and the role that it plays in, uh, you know, our country in particular, where, you know, we spend more on it than probably anything. And yet somehow the amount of money we spend on military could actually be, you know, used to solve many of the problems that we're currently dealing with. Um, what do you think people misunderstand, uh, particularly people like me who only see it from the outside?
4: I think there's a. Obviously, I can only speak from my own perspective, but I
1: think there's a, a pride, a very durable pride uh in knowing that um as someone who served in the military you have decided that you're going to uh even to the point of sacrificing yourself um support a certain ideal uh and do that you know, with other people who at least you know on those um in that particular I guess arena have the same uh, beliefs you know and so One of the, I'll I'll give you a couple of reasons as to why I joined the military. So part of it was I was in uh, law school during when 9-11 happened and I was in uh, a combined degree program at Duke and kind of thinking in this idea of, okay, I'll do health policy and maybe some patent law and this will be very interesting. And it completely disrupted my worldview because I didn't know I mean, you know, like most people, I didn't know anything about Afghanistan or, you know, very uh, next to nothing about the Middle East. Um, but I did know that this seemed as if this was something that uh, was an attack on um, the entire United States collectively. Uh, even if I didn't know a lot of that other stuff, and so when I looked at it, I thought, well, you know, I, I'll be a doctor, hopefully for the rest of my life, and I'll see patients, you know, until I'm sixty something. But this can be an opportunity for me to serve the people that are going over there, um, you know, and and doing these things uh, with the concept uh, or with the belief, rather, that they're supporting our ideals. And, you know, having done that uh, with a a Marine helicopter squadron, it was just a significant amount of of pride. You felt as if you were doing something um, that was was selfless um, and, and doing something that made you feel um, that you were giving back in in a way that you you could not give back otherwise. So I think a lot of the people in the military, you know, they don't, they don't look at it from the idea of, yes, this is, you know, trillions of dollars that can be spent on something else. Uh, You know, they really look at it as, you know, this is uh, a contribution that unites people and, and is keeping us safe.
2: Yeah. Well, so with all that in mind, I mean, given where we're at now, um, do the, you know, you're a doctor and, you know, you and I were talking before here about, you know, trying to create some semblance of a, a new normal within the craziness that we're dealing with. I mean, how do you see a future coming about that isn't so, you know, sort of detrimental and, and so damaging to people's lives? Because, you know, I think it's, it's pretty safe to say that people are really
4: suffering right now. Yeah, you know, I think the only way that we're going to get there in terms of this future
1: that uh, is going to have less people suffering is if we really invest um, in those points that have been exposed by the COVID pandemic. Uh, You know, getting back to what I said before, we've known for a long time that there have been disparities in healthcare. You know, we've seen it. Um, You know, the, the data is there to support that. But when the COVID pandemic hit in the, in the beginning, there were, in some instances, two to three times more um, African-Americans and uh, Hispanics and Native Americans getting infected uh, than their white counterparts. Um, even younger African-Americans, in some instances, were up to 10 times more likely to die, right? And so part of that, you know, we can say, okay, that may be uh, an artifact of the healthcare care system, uh, access to healthcare. But the other artifact of that is that you have, in some instances, these people that are living um, in low-income, crowded communities or are essential workers or in transit, you know, um, uh, you know, can't socially distance on a train or these other types of things. And those things being exposed uh, by the pandemic, um, I think, lets us see what are the you know, canaries in the coal mine, so to speak, in terms of our broader socioeconomic dynamic. Um, you know, and if that doesn't change, then the next pandemic, the same thing's going to happen again. And the one after that, the one after that. Um, but you know, we're not going to move away from, you know, being a a capitalistic society. And even if we did, I'm not sure that would be the solution. But I think if we really look at the history, um, of how certain things have come about, uh, and, and invest in those areas that you know we've not invested in, you know, whether it is you know ensuring that we have uh, reliable housing um, for people that that hadn't because of you know decades and decades of, of redlining or, or Jim Crow laws or, uh, or racism or these other types of things, or you know the odd thing that's happened in the last you know, 25 years where we've removed a lot of funding from um, uh, mental health institutions, and you have a lot of people who have mental health issues, um, on the streets. Uh, you know, and in some instances up to, in some cities, up to 40% of those people are veterans from the last 20 years of war. Right. So I think it, it starts with us acknowledging that, um, some of our, our lack of attention and lack of investment in these areas, um, has, has exacerbated these problems and then having a willingness to actually, invest the money in those areas so that we can move forward and this doesn't happen
4: again
2: Hmm. yeah i guess the the bigger question and this actually i think applies not just to sort of society at large but even on an individual level why do you think it is that we have to be pushed to like a boiling point to actually have anything change because i probably i was asking somebody this question the other day about politics and how you know michael moore had this movie where you know, in other countries, for example, where college is tuition free and the, the moment they put a tuition hike in, people take to the streets and here, people don't do a damn thing. They're just kind of, you know, sitting lazily on the you know, sprawling lawns at their expensive campuses. Um, why is it that it takes that uh, for us to actually do something to change, you know, whether as a society or even on an individual level?
4: You know, I think this is the question that we've asked ourselves
1: uh, as doctors for a really long time, because we see this on a, a micro level. You know, it's like I'll have a conversation with the same patient about their blood pressure or about some other uh, related thing, um, and, and nothing's really done until, unfortunately, you know, they have a heart attack. So, you know, I wouldn't say it's it's necessarily, you know, human nature, because kind of to your point, you can see in other societies um people may be a little bit more willing to uh you know go to the streets but i feel as if you know every society will have its norms in terms of people kind of lulling themselves into a false sense of comfort you know whatever that may be you know um and it's not until you are substantially disrupted from that that i think people feel as if there's enough of a of a price so to speak to be paid for them to do nothing and so on a micro level, it may be, um, and they kind of get to this in the whole idea of motivational interviewing in medicine, you know, trying to figure out what, is, what is it that you value the most, um, that would make you change your behavior. Um, and so for some people, it may be, you know, avoiding that heart attack. Um, for other people, it may be, uh, you know, making sure that they can, you know, still get to play softball with their kid until they're fifties or sixties or something and making sure that they don't have the back pain and other issues that are associated with that. But I think, you know, collectively, when you look at all of the different things that we have in our society that kind of creates this, you know, for some people, almost a a cocoon, um, you know, that separates them from uh, needing to make hard decisions. It's not until that is completely disrupted or taken away from them. Or the threat of that being taken away from them, that that sometimes they have, I think, the energy and the will to act.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of heart attacks, you know, there's one other thing I think that I find interesting is that somebody has this sort of traumatic thing saying they're going to value their life or whatever it is, you know, and then they go back to their old behaviors. Uh, Why does that happen? Like, what causes that?
1: Yeah. You know, it's, I think it's just the fact that. we, we have very bad memories, (laughs) you know? Um, you know, it's like, why do people, um, you know, say that they're going to quit something and then they go right back to doing it? Or, you know, why do people in some instances find themselves in, in bad friendships, uh, you know, leave those friendships and then come back? Um, I, I think it's, it's hard for us again, to kind of move ourselves away from, uh, what feels comfortable. Um, and, you know, there's been some studies that, that even, I think, reinforces the idea of uh, implicit bias. You know, it's like you know, explicit bias, racism. I mean, that's kind of easy to call out, right? I mean, you, know, you have someone, you know, with a, a hood over their head and, and you know, the, the caricature of uh, the KKK member or whatever. I mean, that's that's easy. Um, but, you know, even neuro, from a neurobiological standpoint, there seems to be a suggestion that people have so many implicit biases because it's easier. Uh, to end up, you know, lumping people together and, and you know, these collective, um, I think categories in terms of their behavior, and use that uh, as a quick assessment of, you know, how they're going to interact with someone. So I think, you know, trying to move us away from those types of things, you know, whether it's, you know, from uh, a health standpoint uh, and the things that make you comfortable, you know, you, you're more comfortable eating similar meals all the time uh, than you would be changing it. Um, or more comfortable, you know, interacting with the same people all the time uh, and not needing to to have that disrupted. Um, I think that comfort is what keeps us um, from being willing to be challenged in certain extenses and challenged, you know, in healthy ways.
2: Hmm. Well, it, I want to wrap uh, by kind of talking about how we deal with the sort of mental health issues that are being caused by this because, you know, you alluded to it earlier and I, I think I was telling you before we, we hit record officially that, you know, we've had this very unusual situation in Boulder where college students came back and then they basically said, we're banning gatherings of any size for, for everybody who is 18 to 22. And, you know, we're like, okay, yeah, some of these people are being idiots and going to big parties. But my thought my thought after that was like, how can you... Actually, think that this is going to not cause some serious damage in the long run to socially isolate people like that. Um, I mean, gatherings of any size was, a, in my mind, like almost a bit too far.
1: Yeah, it's just not enforceable. I mean, you, you know, you don't have the the police force that could do that, and then it ends up becoming arbitrary. You know, it's like the the example that you gave of just someone randomly walking down the street with their significant other, and they get a thousand dollar fine, whereas one street over, someone could be doing the same thing, and You know,
4: it's just, it just, they're not caught. Um, Yeah, I I think, you know, and I sympathize with the public health officials and
1: the government officials in trying to figure out what would be the right balance. But I think the only way that we're going to get to that point where we have what would be a comfortable balance for enough people is if, you know, we're willing to acknowledge all the different trade-offs that come out of these decisions, or at least enough of them for people to be able to make informed decisions. You know, one of the things that I think I start and finish um, my ideas about medicine and the healthcare system with is this idea of uh, giving the patient as much information as possible to make an informed decision. Um, as you're probably aware, uh, medicine has been rife with paternalism uh, that's substantially affected negatively on people's outcomes. Um, You know, that that paternalism uh, has been there for various reasons. And so, you know, I would have people, I'd hear this conversation from people in which they'd say, well, you know, if the health officials say, uh, you know, 50 million people could be infected by COVID in two months, and that's wildly inaccurate, they're like, well, you know, whatever it takes to get people to stay at home. And I sit there and say, no, that doesn't make any sense. You know, lying to people uh, just so that you get the outcome um, you know, this whole, the means justify or the injustifies the means, so to speak, is just, it's not okay. It's not what we should be doing as a society. It, it assumes that people are, you know, cattle and can only be, you know, uh, herded in one direction uh, if we give them, uh, you know, a certain amount of, of information that may or may not be true, as long as it gets them to do what we want them to do. So I think in this particular case, Um, You know, being honest with people in terms of what the COVID risk is, but then also informing people of what the risks of some of these other things, the mental health issues are, uh, and making sure that we have the resources in place to support them. You know, I haven't read every line of the CARES Act. Uh, I mean, and there's some great stuff in there, but I don't know how much of it uh, is in there to really support some of the mental health um, challenges that have come out of the isolation um, that, that we've had to do in some instances and in some instances, not as much, uh, but people have done yeah. it you know, obviously because of the fear. Yeah. No, I mean, I,
2: I, I, saw it firsthand because, you know, like when roommates and I, you know, any one of us goes out of town to do something, like we kind of said, all right, for the sake of all of our safety, it's like a one week quarantine. And I remember by the end of the week, I was losing my mind, even though we're in the same house, you know, uh, and it was shocking how difficult that was.
1: Yeah, I mean, and then you know, multiply that times months on months and months, Um, and then the really scary thing that you know people are saying, well, okay, there's a vaccine coming out, but maybe it's coming out too fast, and you know, maybe I won't get it, and and I think I saw one poll that said up to thirty to forty percent of people say they're not going to get it. Um, So that's why I said this is this is something that can last for a very long time. And getting back to what I just mentioned in terms of misinformation or. you know, false information unless we have accurate information out there people uh, are not going to trust what they need to trust in order to help us get out of this situation yeah
2: Wow. Um, well, this has been really, really fascinating. I mean, it's kind of a dive into sort of a combination of, of race, life outcomes, and healthcare all in sort of one conversation. Um, and I really enjoyed talking to you. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
4: What it is, I, I want to make sure I understand the question. So so what do I think makes someone unmistakable? Yeah. I think it's their outlook on life. You know, I think it's it's their natural energy. Um, you know, I've I've had, I think, the
1: privilege of coming across a ton of people um, from uh, multitudes of lives, you know, from India, the Middle East, from the United States, and, and seeing someone who has just a, a certain, you know, energy and, and excitement about life, um, to me, makes them unmistakable because that's the type of person that I think, you know, no matter what situation you put them in within reason, uh, they're always going to figure out a way, uh, to make the best of it. And I think that's one of the best of human qualities.
2: Yeah. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your wisdom, uh, story and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work and everything that you're up to?
4: No,
1: thanks a lot for I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, so yeah, so as of right now, you know, there's a lot of content that I have um, online in, in various uh, areas. It's not all collected one area. I mean, there's you know, I have my LinkedIn profile and, and my Twitter, uh, Kermit Jones, uh, MDJD. Um, but yeah, so there's 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 a lot out there that people can find in terms of uh, YouTube's and, and and other things and articles. Um, so I'm I'm working on getting it all in one central place. Hopefully, I'm um, talking to you will kind of increase the demand for that. Um, But it's not that hard to find because thankfully for me, there are not a lot of people named Kermit Jones out there, (laughs) Kermit that that isn't green, uh, and then also that are doctors and lawyers. So yeah,
2: awesome. Um, And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming?